Hi, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Corbett, and this is the Reading Women Podcast, where we are reclaiming half the bookshelf by talking about books by or about women. And today we have Christine Hung Oak Lee with us, and she has recently written Tell Me Everything You Don't Remember. And so we're going to chat with her today about her book, about women in writing, and everything. So welcome to the podcast, Christine. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you here. We've been looking forward to this for so, so, so long. <laughs> Sorry, that's the writer. We're like, it feels unreal. So, of course, my response is a giggle. I'm like, <laughs> um, but that's, uh, that's what happens when your debut memoir comes out. <laughs> it seems unreal to you. Like, oh, okay. That's pretty been, much been in been that's been my whole week. <laughs> I can imagine. Like, it's been a huge press week, right? It has been. Um, it's been super exciting. There's, I can't complain. Um, but it's, you know, I'm this massive introvert and suddenly I'm out in the world and talking about myself and my book and making sure I'm smiling while I do it. We're both introverts doing this thing. So we feel you 100%, man. Uh, so I guess to start off with, uh, for those of our listeners who haven't read the book, could you just describe it and we'll go from there. Sure. Tell me everything you don't remember is about the stroke I had at the age of 33. It was a left thalamic stroke and it was caused by a clot that went through a birth defect in my heart um, instead of being filtered out through the lungs. So what it does is it takes the reader from the moment of the stroke and back and forth in time as I seek and find my memory again throughout recovery and in doing so touches upon the themes of rebirth, literal birth, and also finding my a new self and moving forward from this trauma. That's one thing that really struck me as I was reading a book is the book is how the structure I felt like very captured very well, like your recovery process, like as you were telling it, like, I really felt like I was engaging with your recovery. Yeah. Um, and you're, and you're speaking of the, uh, sort of slaughterhouse five reference or just the overall traveling through time. For me, it was more so just like the, the traveling through time, but definitely like, I thought that the slaughterhouse five really underscored that whole feeling that you were trying to evoke. Yeah, I tried I tried to figure out what the structure of this memoir was was going to be. It, it was really hard for me the fact that I had to write this memoir based on things I could remember from what I'd written in journals. So my memory was not this clean sweep of and then and then and then and then and then and then there were these major gaps I had from when I didn't write down what had happened. Um, and I don't, my memory doesn't naturally remember it as one long nar narrative. So there was that. And then there was the fact that, you know, I was writing about memory and I was writing about the brain. And I also just didn't want to write about myself all the time. It felt awkward. So it was a conscious decision to include science in the narrative. So I, that was part of the structural decision. So I knew that there would be chapters focused on the scientific aspects of my stroke. And then around the time I started writing the memoir, I went back and read Slaughterhouse-Five. In the memoir, Slaughterhouse-Five, and in real life, Slaughterhouse-Five was a book I was reading, quote-unquote reading, at the time of my stroke. And I didn't realize at the time of my stroke that I wasn't remembering a single word I was reading. So what I did was went back and read the, the book for the first time. And it was while reading the book that I began to understand 
Billy Pilgrim's travels through time and feel a connection to that feeling of confusion and, you know, disorientation. And so I adopted that structure into the memoir itself. It's gorgeous. The structure. Oh, just, oh my goodness. Like I actually like Slaughterhouse Five better now because I've read your book before. It was like, eh, but now I'm like, oh my goodness, it's like Christine's book. Oh my God, that's a super compliment. I'm, I'm like, I made that, that I can't imagine making Vonnegut better, but thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Autumn and I read it in grad school. And so we kind of really, really geeked out over all the references in there. It was one, some of my worries. I was like, um, I don't know if everybody's read Slaughterhouse Five. So when I was writing it, I had to make sure that it it could stand um, for readers who hadn't yet read Slaughterhouse Five, too. And I definitely can tell that, like, I could, didn't remember all the details from when I read Slaughterhouse Five, but as you're describing, it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's how that happened and how that went. So, and I actually recommended it to my spouse because he loves Slaughter, Slaughterhouse Five, and I was like, you have to read this memoir. And she uses Slaughterhouse Five. He's like, oh, I think I might actually read that. So. <laughs> Yeah, we're always recommending Josh all these random books in the podcast. So poor man, his TBR is like hundreds of books long now. Um, being told what to read could be a lot worse. Life could be a lot worse than getting book recommendations. It's very, very true. So in addition to the structure, we also wanted. To, I will particularly uh, when I read it, I kind of geeked out because your recovery also kind of imitates the birth of a new person and you discuss like your recovery in terms of a child developing you've talked about in other interviews and such like how you recovered you had to learn a new way to do things your brain had to basically find a way around part that died from the stroke so at the time did you realize that you were a new person but did you realize that in hindsight or just how did that come about yeah I think that we all go we kind of become this new person even after dealing with flu. You know, you kind of go through it and go, oh, you know, I feel better. I feel like a new person again. Um, and there, that's that actual phrase. Um, but uh, I didn't come to terms with the fact that this is all leading to my becoming a new person until long after I'd recovered. And by that, I mean years after. Uh, I, part of my recovery was consisted of becoming very depressed because my goal was to be back to the old person and be recovered. I feel like that that's actually even the uh, meaning of the word recover, right? Mm. It's to go back and mm-hmm. get what you had. I was in that state of mind, and there's just no way I was going to become that old self again. There's just no way that I would be able to pick up every skill that I'd had before. And I became very depressed because I kept mourning that self. And fighting to have that back. And of course, that just amplified my sense of loss. You know, it wasn't until years later that I realized I'm a new self. This is a new me. I have new skills that often offset the skills I've lost. That was very healing too. But it was just something I slowly, slowly, slowly pieced together. Um, By the time, at the point of recovery, I basically went, well, I guess I'm as back as I'll ever be. And this is this is this is good enough, um, but it wasn't until much later that I had a feeling of, you know, that I really felt like, oh, you know, that I had an explanation of what I'd become. I think that's really interesting with the brain, and you described a lot of the science about how you recovered and how your brain finds a new way to function. And I've heard that like your personality is basically how your brain has figured out how to function. 
as you're reading, I could see that, like you talked about your emotions and how you could not lie and just the different things and how your brain had just changed the way it functioned. And I just thought it was really beautiful how like you had like the birth imagery and the child imagery and just my writer self geeked out like majorly. I'm just sitting there like underlining everything. Here I go again with the giggle. <laughs> um, I'm horrible with compliments. I love compliments, but I'm horrible with compliments. Because my dad and, you know, I'm a child of immigrants. So there's always this like, okay, good job. Keep doing better. You know, you got an A. Why didn't you get an A plus? So um, <laughs> it's a very strange experience for me to experience compliments. Thank you. I'm being taught to say thank you so much. You're <laughs> <laughs> perfectly fine. So one of the other things that you talked about in your, like, related to recovery was, um, you know, mourning the person you once were, you know, including your husband, who's your primary caregiver at that time. And like, so how did you see like the stages of grief manifest themselves like during your recovery? Yeah. Um, what are they? The, the stages are denial, bargaining, anger, depression, acceptance, right? I'm not sure if they're in that order. Um, oftentimes, we'll and I don't, I don't feel like I need to put them in exact order because I think people's grieving process um, isn't always in per, in that stated order. So, of course, there was the denial. I didn't go to the hospital when I had my stroke. I just didn't, couldn't possibly fathom that I'd had a stroke. Um, of course, there was a denial that was amplified by my memory loss because I couldn't remember what had happened to me. So I kept having to ask over and over again what had happened. And I think for me, you know, bargaining came long after anger. I just got very angry about um, by the time I, mean, I was in this blissful state. I was in this Zen state when I'd, I had a 15-minute short-term memory. Because when you don't have a short-term memory, you can't worry and you can't plan. You don't hold any grudges. It's very peaceful. It's, it's, it's hell on earth for everyone else around you. But um, for me, it was just this very peaceful state of mind. But when I got better, I started remembering what I couldn't do. And I um, had this very long year of flipping between anger and depression. You know, I just kept being either angry about not being able to do the things I wanted to do and then being depressed because I couldn't do them, um, which then turned into bargaining where I was like, I basically decided that if I could, you know, I had to really figure out what it was, what was most important to me. I remember making a bargain saying, well, the one thing I want back is my writing. So if I just work very hard, maybe everything else will come back. And then, and then of course the acceptance, you know, even before I was all the way better, you know, my doctors had told me that that was as far as they could take me. And I still wasn't able to read anything beyond a short story. Um, I still wasn't able to balance a checkbook. I try to add, but, you know, I remember Adam at the time was like, honey, just what did you do to this bank account? And I said, what do you mean? And I just subtracted it and added. And he's like, no, this is not math. What you did is not math. And I'm like, yes, it is. And it all made sense in my head. But he's just like, no, this checkbook is not balancing out. And so he took the checkbook away from me. And in hindsight, of course, Adam must have been in denial, too, because who gives somebody who just had a stroke and can't remember anything the checkbook? Um, <laughs> so he was yeah. going through his own cycle, too. 
Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I finally we accepted. So I was like, all right, well, I guess if this is as good as it gets. And then, um, I think there's an added step to depression when, when somebody gets very ill is then there's the PTSD that comes. Um, like right. you just get these triggers like, oh my God, what will happen? What, what, what if it happens again? Because, um, you know, I, I, they figured out what the root cause was, but they hadn't gone and immediately fixed the hole in my heart uh, because it's it wasn't you know it wasn't a it was not the most common thing to do back then and of course you know that's all you need insurance approval and insurance companies don't always want to approve that procedure so yeah and then I did have another one so <laughs> then that hole got closed kind of a related question like do you think like naming or acknowledging like the phase that you were in helped lead to your recovery? Cause I think about the passages when you're talking about, you know, your childhood and these, or these feelings that you had been denying or, you know, not acknowledging. Do you think that was a byproduct of your recovery or helped like progress your recovery? It was very liberating to learn that what I was experiencing was grief. I blogged anonymously throughout the span of my stroke including that very, very first day. Um, it was at jadepark.wordpress.com. And so I made a number of friends on that blog because I would just, even if it was nonsense, I was blogging with the intention of recording everything for posterity under the safety of being, you know, um, nameless and also with the hope that it was an exercise in writing. And somebody said, have you thought, about whether maybe what you're feeling is a is a grieving process. And it was completely enlightening and liberating to realize what I was going through was something that I had to go through. Um, mm-hmm. And once I realized that it was a part of a process, then I was able to let go and stop resisting these stages and these floods of feeling and these reactions to what was happening. I appreciate um, how you talked about in your book, how you wrote the BuzzFeed article and how like the process, not just of grieving, but how that reflected in your writing. Um, And a writing teacher in college always said, you know, emotion drives a lot of what you write, but if you write too soon, you're just, you're just going to emotionally vomit like all over the page. It's going to be like horrible. That's an awful image, but I, it stuck with me and it, you know, I just thought of that immediately when you talked about how you had to wait for time to pass to write the book and to write your story and you knew you needed to do it. Can you like describe the stages of that, like how that reflected in your recovery and the different attempts that you might have made to write your story? Yes. It took me a long time to be able to write about my stroke. I knew that I would eventually write about my stroke, but I had no idea that I'd have to wait nearly 10 years to do so. I did a lot of therapeutic writing throughout my stroke. I did a lot of therapeutic writing after my stroke. I didn't talk, um, I didn't discuss it very much with my, um, my friends and people I had just become friends with. Um, to the extent that when I wrote the BuzzFeed essay in 2014, 
a lot of people were stunned because they didn't realize I'd had a stroke. As I was processing it all those years, I think part of nonfiction is taking a personal, particular experience and then writing outward and making it universal. And that universality wasn't there in my writing until I went through a new trauma in 2013. And it was in 2013 that I saw the stroke, the stroke as a source of lessons and not just pain. It was in 2013 that I had a baby in postpartum depression and my husband had just left me and he and I had been together for 18 years that I could truly understand the stroke and write about it in a way that was edifying for others because it was finally edifying for me. I finally could see it as a whole. I could finally see these the, the lessons learned and how they all connected. I was trying to learn lessons throughout, but I just, you know, didn't see how they all connected in one narrative until then. Um, and then I was very fortunate to be asked by BuzzFeed to write an essay about that experience. I was done with the response, but I think that it was because I waited. Yeah, it's it's definitely beautiful. Uh, one uh, question I did want to follow up was, um, you talk a lot about how when you would describe your experience to people, and you just mentioned, you know, people didn't even realize that, I mean, you know, having a stroke at 33 is incredibly rare. And a lot of people were like, well, you don't look sick, or you don't look like you have a stroke. How did that affect your like emotional recovery? Like when you would talk to people and it's almost like you have to like bring up evidence of, well, I actually did have it because of X, Y, and Z. And can you just talk about that relation with people and, and your experience? It had some, had some really big upsides and really da- big downsides. You know, on the upside, I could pass as normal if I wanted to. I didn't really have any physical manifestations in my body after the stroke. On the downside, I was severely limited. And every time I had to tell people about my invisible disability, I had to explain and validate my position. I became very resentful for having to do so. To the extent that I wrote up these little cards that I like, passed around to people saying, please be patient with me. And then that backfired because then people were overly um, obsequious. It was very enlightening for me because as a when I eventually taught, um, I became a teacher eventually, it helped me understand my students with learning disabilities and what they have to navigate and the fact that they have to explain themselves every single time and that they navigate the world in a slightly different way. It was, it was, I think that was the most, that was a very challenging part of recovery. I didn't know at which point, you know, like, and then after a while when I was, you know, better enough, you know, um, I chose never to really talk about the stroke again as part of introductions, unless it came up specifically, because I had gotten so sick by that point of having to explain myself. And so that might, mm-hmm. that explain, you know, for me, that's a lot of why I never told people I had, a, you know, all the people I met after 2008, very few of them had knew that I'd had a stroke because I, by that point, gotten so sick of telling people and having to explain myself. It's very emotionally exhausting. It is. I, <laughs> it is. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't, the left alimus does a lot of self-soothing. Um, it's, it doesn't really get fully developed until you're almost two years old as a human being. Um, and it's why babies, you know, even if you tell them mom's going to be right back, they still freak out. 
uh, it's because they don't have that soothing capability. So I, I was not a pleasant sick person. I was a rat. So when people, when I felt emotionally burdened, I would have a meltdown just like a toddler. You know, apologies to all the pharmacy techs who had to deal with me for my medicine at that time because, um, if my, if I had to wait a little longer, I just, I'd have a meltdown and start crying. That's one reason I really appreciated your perspective because I think it's easy to empathize with people who, you know, have a broken arm or some kind of visible kind of illness. But if you can't see it, it is harder. Unless you actually like, get inside their head, it is harder to kind of ex- understand what they're going through unless you've experienced it yourself too. Yeah. And if you're 33 and all your friends are in their early 30s, you know, it's hard to expect people to truly understand. It's like being the first friend who gets divorced, you know? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, oh, crap. Nobody, everybody <laughs> else is married. You know, I don't have anywhere to go. You know, <laughs> I have to go. I'm totally, you know, I'm totally single now, and everyone's like lovey dovey. You know, and um, so being out of sync with everyone. So to switch gears just a little bit, um, so our podcast is about, you know, books written by women or about women. From your perspective, like we kind of wanted to ask you like what you thought about the importance of having female voices in writing and in literature and um, if and how that influenced the writing of this memoir or the people that you were inspired by. Absolutely. I have spent almost my entire, like a, a vast majority of my life taking care of men. Um, my dad, you know, <laughs> some, seriously, he raised me to be the perfect girl. He's like, you know, he would always say, men don't like that if you do it that way. You know, if you have, you know, if you just get really stubborn, you're just never going to find a husband. And that was literally the filter with which he grew, he raised me to the point where I just am a guy's kind of gal on the exterior. Um, and it wasn't until I went to grad school for my MFA um, at Mills College that this all started to shift because until then I had also been in tech, which is predominantly male. You go into a meeting, it's all males, built around male culture. And so Mills College is a small liberal arts college, and it's um, it's a women's small liberal arts college. The graduate mm-hmm. school is co-ed. It's a small minority, you know, like there are no men on campus. And it takes a special kind of man to apply to a women's college for grad school. Definitely. <laughs> and so the graduate school is very informed by that undergraduate cultural identity of being a women's school. Most of my workshops were, had, were, you know, were female. Like, there would be, there were maybe one or two men in my MFA workshops. It was a total cultural shift for me to be in an environment where women's voices were predominant, where a female voice, you know, took precedent and was the perspective of much of the feedback and instruction. This is the framework in which I started a writing life. At times, I, I found it very strange because I just come from this world, was all about dudes, but it, in hindsight, was incredibly formative to me. And when I was writing my memoir, I had to really work hard to not let Adam's perspective get into my narrative. You think that when you write a memoir, it's like, it's my memoir. But (laughs) given the way I was raised, you know, um, it's very easy for me to be like, well, what does that guy think? Um, But it was my experience in the MFA program at Mills. It was my experience as a new mother to a daughter that really helped me listen to my own voice. And, you know, that informed the writing of the memoir. And, you know, I was just 
basically alone that year in 2014 and part of 2014 and 15, as I wrote this memoir, and I was surrounded by women. I was, just, you know, I was a new mom. I had a daughter. I had babysitters. They were women. I, you know, my doulas would visit me. They were women. So I felt like I was in this incredible new space, fortified by women and informed by women, fed by women, led by women, held by women. You know, it, it, uh, it, I hope that force shows in this memoir. Oh, it definitely does. Um, I mean, that's one thing that really struck me was just how powerful your voice is on its own and not supported, propped up by male characters or from, as you were saying, like not too much from um, your husband's perspective. But And that's when, one reason I think you really strongly resonated with us is like we both went to schools where w- women's voices weren't prized as much. So we definitely are attracted to these strong female voices. Very refreshing. You know, every time I go to AWP, I don't know if you're familiar with AWP, um, that big writers conference with all the MFA programs there. I'm like, where are all these guys from? (laughs) Because my (laughs) MFA was almost all women. (laughs) Like, whoa, trip out. Whoa, who knew that there were this many MFA, you know, guys in the MFA program? Because that's just, that's, you know, for me, my experience was it was, it was just completely female dominant, which I love that I, and, you know, I also went to Hedgebrook, the writing residency for women and, uh, surround, you know, focused on the female voice. So, um, it's, I think, you know, there, there is like a subconscious drive to, um, mitigate my upbringing and, um, my 20 somethings where I immersed myself in, in the male code. Yeah, that's actually one of the reasons why we started about this podcast, because in our English major, it was all, you know, we called dead white males. Uh, So (laughs) we wanted uh, a larger, not just, you know, women, but a larger diversity audience as well. And one of those things is, um, you know, people with chronic illnesses. And um, I have a chronic illness, so I'm really passionate about promoting voices in chronic illness. And there aren't many. Like, I can think of Laura Hillenbrand. You know, uh, she writes with Chronicles, but that's about it. So one of the reasons, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, where did you get your um, inspiration for, if you got any, um, you know, other women writers with chronic illness to look to um, as you're, you know, telling your story? Yeah, there aren't um, a lot of those memoirs, and there aren't a lot of memoirs by writers of color either. Um, you know, certainly there's, you know, uh, James Baldwin. <laughs> there's also... You know, there's and, and in terms of traumatic brain injury, there's uh, Brain on Fire by Suzanne Cahalan. But, you know, there's, there's just not a lot of chronic illness memoirs. But, um, you know, I've always been doing my own thing. I think I, I identify as a writer of color first before I identify as a writer of chronic illness. I feel like everything I do is going to be a pioneering event on one level or another. You know, and I think each and every one of us is a pioneer regardless of precedent, because as an, as artists, we have to find a new perspective on each and every single new thing that happens to us. Um, and we're adding to the spectrum of voices out there. And some of us are going to be farther out on the ledge than others. But that's our duty as artists, is to put out a new perspective, something that no one else has heard before. Um, so... 
you know, I always struggle to find previous examples of the kind of writing or storytelling I do. I, I write because no one else is telling the stories that I want to read. So, you know, we have to be brave. We have to be brave and courageous and tell our truth, even if we're the only one doing it. And, uh, you know, put our, put our work out there. Writing is hard. Like it's harder than I think people think it is. <laughs> oh my gosh. I had a friend once telling me, tell me, Christine is work. He was like this really fit man. He's like, if, if, if working out were easy, everybody would do it. Everybody would be in shape. And I was like, yeah, okay. And then I'm like, well, if, if writing a book were easy, everybody would do it. Uh, it's just, it, it, it changes my mind. I remember the last word I put down and I was like, my brain is just completely smoking. It changes your whole mind to have completed a book. Just this marathon, you know, like there's a, re- it's kind of like, it's like running a marathon, just even training for it. It, it, it changes you. Are you working on anything right now or are you taking a break from your marathon? I am. Uh, I, I am writing uh, my novel next. I'm uh, trying to finish up my novel, The Golem of Soul, and it's supposed to be out in 2018 um, by Echo HarperCollins. And then I'm working on another book proposal, possibly uh, another memoir. I feel like my, my novel, people are asking me if I have a part two to this story, and I'm like, well, the novel is kind of part two. Uh, because as you know, this me- in this memoir, I'm trying to get back to my writing. And when I do mm-hmm. get back to my writing, it's this novel to which I return. So the novel, in, in a sense, is part two of this whole saga. Um, and I can't wait to return to it. I'm a little bit on break right now because I'm helping out with the, you know, I'm birthing this book into the universe. And as anybody who's given birth knows, we you can't really pay attention to anything else while you do it. But yeah, that's what I'm working on next, and I'm very excited about it. It's about a, a guy who immigrates to America in 1972, looking for his long lost daughter, who uh, builds a golem to find her, and it's a cross cultural retelling of an old tale. I'm so excited right now. Like, I had to stop myself from going to like my list of the giant list of all things. Like, add this book now. <laughs> oh, my, oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is. Oh, man. Okay, I'm just going to have to stop geeking out and breathe. <laughs> so um, I, I think that's all of our questions today and all the time we have. But uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm, I love podcasts. You guys saved my life when I have long commutes. <laughs> we're, thank you so much. And we're so excited to have you on. And so... I guess I'll do the outro now. Um, (laughs) So that's our show. And um, next month we will return to our regularly scheduled podcasting program. Um, And in the meanwhile, you can find me, um, Autumn Privet, on Twitter and Litzy and Instagram and Kendra at Katie Winchester. And we'll put some links in our podcast notes about places where you can keep up with Christine and her news and uh, releases about her new book. And thank you all so much for listening. Uh, We'll talk to you later, guys. Bye.